So we're going to be starting a couple of weeks study on the most used Bible, most misused Bible verses. And uh, I, I want to start off with this sense of, I do like, and I hope you do too, that people refer to Scripture in general. So that's a good starting point. So even the fact that people are misusing Scripture, at least when they're using it, they're using it, I hope, <clears throat> we'll talk about the exception there or the caveat, they're using it because that's the source of authority. And so when people are appealing to Scripture, they're making an appeal to the ultimate authority. The problem with that, of course, is sometimes uh, we could have a point of view, we find a verse that kind of goes along with it, and we subject the Scripture to our authority and, and make the Scripture say what we want to say and only use the Scripture because we know other people respect its authority. And that's a real abuse of Scripture. You know, that, That's really wiping your feet on the Scripture. You know what I'm saying? You might as well just put the Bible down as a doormat at your house. Wipe your feet off it when you come in. Because that's what people do when they do that. But I do think, especially... So there's those outside the body, outside of the faith, that use Scripture for a number of reasons. And we probably all have examples of that that you can share as we go along. And, and, and we also have examples of though, plenty of people inside the body that for years have heard verses done a certain way and have said certain things and have just come to accept them. That that's what they mean. And so... But there's a particular sort of... You know, what's... What, and, and Todd and I were just kind of having a discussion about this a little bit, talking about the needful foundation of expository teaching and understanding. And then I was saying, for me, if I just if all I do is, ex- is subject myself to expository teaching and never do anything else, I, I don't feel full. I, I feel like I'm missing something big time. That, uh, uh, so I, but I did it in a way that I knew would challenge Todd. I said, I, I need more than the Bible. And, but I gave that some context. So... Um, but at the end of the day, even as I was t- telling him, everything still comes back to that solid, expository understanding that we have. If, if, if the Scripture hasn't been properly ex- exegeted to us, then everything that flows from that is going to be messed up. Everything. Mm-hmm. So even the class that you know Tony and I and uh, the Capreras just took and Chrissy Leo, it was a great class of ten weeks. I would be missing out on something rich and robust if I hadn't taken that. Um... Because it helped me to see my life. Uh, I, I hate to even call it my life. I hate to see the life that God has provided and how He's using, how He's invited me, how He's welcomed me, how He's rescued me into His work. And so everything, so I have to interpret my life. I've got to execute my life through His Word. Understand? To just take something that's a sort of a feel-good course of self-awareness and finding inner meaning and all that stuff. There is no inner meaning without the, without that meaning that comes from what is reality, which is God's revelation, which has to be so we, we, we're cool now. We have to sit, right? <laughs> we're cool. We're on the same page. <laughs> so, I have to make sure I covered that a little bit because I didn't want to... I don't mind picking a little fun fight, but I don't want to pick a real fight. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, there are important things... Of course, everything comes from the Scripture. And when people, over a period of time, hear verses used in a certain way, they acclimate their life to it a little bit in certain ways and develop certain expectations. The Scripture should absolutely build up our expectation for things. We can have any number of expectations and they can be realistic if they're based on the Word of God. Truly understood, yes. I, I haven't plucked my eye out despite the fact that... Exactly, I, yeah. I yes. And that's interesting. I don't... I don't <laughs> I don't think that who said I have. <laughs> oh, did I even have to ask? <laughs> uh, 
It's funny you should say that. I remember being at Camp Impact and I spoke with, uh, I spoke, I was speaking with Ed Moore and he was telling him, telling me about a guy he knew that um, literally cut off his right hand. You know? So, and, and that would be a misuse. And that's a clear misuse. I don't think, that wouldn't qualify as one of the most misunderstood Bible verses. Although it, it, it certainly has a place for the unbeliever, right? I mean, if the unbeliever were to read that, right? Uh, you ever know, uh, for example, I saw a thing on Twitter or something this past week or two where there was this guy in a Starbucks and he turned around behind him and there was a lady in full Muslim garb. And he said, oh, what is this, Halloween? <gasps> oh, my goodness. Wow. And so obviously that started a bit of a... And she said, have you even read the Koran? Have you even blah, blah, blah? She says, have you read Luke such and such? You know, he said, you, you know, do you understand the context of the Quran? Have you read Luke such and such where Jesus says, bring them before me so I can slaughter them or whatever? So, now, if I didn't know that Bible verse and I was a non-believer, I'd be thinking, wow, Jesus said, bring that unbeliever before me and I'll slaughter them? Mm-hmm. Just like we say about, you know, our understanding of the Quran in various places. Well, of course, if you've been in this class at all, you've studied the parables of Jesus. And you know that a parable uses terminology and illusion and illustration and analogy and in some cases um, um, oh I can't think of the word but anyway it doesn't literally mean that okay so when Jesus at the end says bring that unworthy servant or bring those servants before me cut them down before me whatever it's to give us an understanding of how you know what Jesus thinks about what that parable speaks about so now of course I would even go a little further. You know, that's another discussion for another day. But if, if I would say, if the Quran generally is the inspired word of God, then we should be beheading infidels. If that is really what God wants, if that's truly what God wants, if that's the true revelation, then we should be beheading infidels. Of course, it's not, and we can we can have that argument. So, um, so we we want to make sure that we're understanding Bible verses, using them correctly, and so the purpose of this isn't sort of to just sort of so that we run around. Cr- making an immediate correction to people. But it is the challenge us to think a little bit. And maybe if we see someone using these verses or developing some sort of an understanding or a prayer life based on some of these things, we can come alongside in the body and help out. And as far as unbelievers who have used some of these verses that we'll encounter, you know, like judge not, right? How popular that is. Then maybe we can learn together how we can use that as a springboard to sort of use that as witness and not just, a, you know... It's very easy to just try to tell people they're wrong, you know, and and unfortunately we take some t- some pleasure out of that that we probably shouldn't. Uh, some of us, some of us don't. Some of us are healthier than others. Okay, some of you are a lot healthier than me in that respect. I have to literally sometimes slow down and say, okay, you know, I can really prove them wrong on this. You know, that's a, I can show them easily how far off they are on this, and and. Uh, I have to constantly have a choke collar on myself. You know those things you put on your dog? You give them a little... Sometimes I need one of those. I just keep it in my pocket. Okay. So, uh, based on this, by the way, I had I was just looking up some verses and in the, in the course of doing that, I came across a book called The Most Misused Bible Verses. So, I'm going to be using that book as a sort of a, a, a place to get not only get the verses we're doing, but some of the thoughts that he shares as well as some of our thoughts and things like that. Um, I, and I can give you the author and all that stuff after if you want. Um, and, and he makes the, you know, what is Scripture to us, right? You know, believe, again, believers regard the Bible, he says, as the place where God continues to speak truth into our lives, a living word, right? It's an active word. Everything that we get 
God's promises, right? The Scripture says that we have everything, we have all we need that pertains to life and godliness through His great and precious promises. So His promises, we have to understand them accurately as they're revealed in Scripture. So we just spent a lot of time in the past couple of months using proper exegesis to demonstrate the false teachers, okay? We, you know, several of us teachers took on some of the false teachers who used Scripture, or as I had, you know, said, it, as I opened up on that study, they repurposed Scripture and, uh, for their own sort of worldly end. So, uh, but it is for us everything we need. It's, it's our all-sufficient uh, everything for understanding God and understanding ourselves and understanding, you know, and the Spirit works through the Scripture to convict us in ways and to encourage us in ways and so many things. You know. uh, so I hope we're all regular students of Scripture. If not, it's never too late to become one. Um, so we have all the all the history of Scripture, but we also, as we've already seen. If we mishandle it, it becomes a very serious... We can weaponize the Scripture. That's a popular term today, right? Weaponizing the Central Intelligence Agency. You know, weaponizing you know, uh, uh, the media and that kind of thing. But we can really weaponize Scripture and turn it into something very, very dangerous. And the author of this book goes to point out, he says, Adolf Hitler, for example, was widely known to take the words of Jesus out of context and use them for propaganda purposes. Mm-hmm. Um... <coughs> Excuse me, and that's one of the things he said. Uh, here's an excerpt from one of his speeches. He says, My feelings as a Christian point me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. It points me to the man who, once in loneliness, surrounded only by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them. And boundless love as a Christian, and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out the temple the brood of vipers and of adders. How terrific was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Powerful speaker, right? I mean, Hitler was known as a very powerful speaker. I've never listened to his speeches because I don't understand German. But I've watched some of them and I can see he's very passionate and inflamed. You know, unfortunately, he's set on fire from hell itself. But he was able to quote Jesus. He was able to take Scripture like that and talk about his love. My feelings as a Christian point to me my Lord and Savior as a fighter. Boy, he's a guy that confesses Christ as his Lord and Savior. He's probably a brother. Right? And boundless love as a Christian and as a man. I don't know what the difference is there. And boundless love as a Christian and as a man. I've read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seize the scourge. Wow. Right? Crazy. I mean, and people, plenty of people have terrible things to say about the Catholic Church, which some are very applicable during the time of Hitler's rise into power and his reign of terror. There's not even words for it. Um, and look at, look at what you can do. And look at how that would empower some people. And look at how that would turn some people against the body in general. So, great, great and mighty things have been said, horrible things, um, about, you know, verses of Scripture. Um, how often do we hear, for example, how often do we hear politicians quote Scripture out of context? Can anyone give me an example? Can anyone think of anything? 
Anyone think of anything that, that, that perhaps a politician has said where it's really not entirely out of context, um, but it, it's given in a very limited, narrow range and in such a way as to suggest that there's nothing else you need to understand about this verse except what I'm giving you of this verse. Is there anything? Yeah. Well, the first thing that came to mind was Nancy Pelosi saying that yeah, MS-13 and the spark of the divine. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. So there's a sense, right? Now, so that's not a particular scripture use, but she says, you know, and again, they're playing games big time with that. Both sides are politicizing that, uh, that big time. But of course, you know, the toxic use of ideas that come to us from scripture, right? The divine spark. And I'm sure in some way she's alluding to the image of God. Now, of course, and, you know, I say this, um, uh, of course, Nancy Pelosi believes in, in abortion up to the, to the last possible second. Okay, so I, I really want to hear about her divine spark. Uh, I really don't. Um, I'd love to tear her to shreds, but I, that's why God would never let me near her. It would ruin my testimony and it's the testimony of Christ, I don't think. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, someone else. Yeah, Todd. Well, I was just thinking, uh, I think I heard Obama use multiple times, of course, Politicians use it. I think. I think every politician uses it eventually the the golden rule. You know, do unto others. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people uh, use that. Um, many times they're put and paraphrased into a certain context where, um, for instance, uh, legitimizing gay rights. Right. Sure. And things like this. I mean, yeah. Uh, somebody's got a smartphone. Just Google Obama quote scripture. All right. Somebody do that. See, see what you come up with. I can remember. I can remember Bill Clinton. When he came to Worcester when the firefighters all died back in 1999 mm. and it's you know it was very presidential for him to come. I think it was a, a, a great thing for him to come I think that's the kind of thing that should happen regardless of whether you agreed or liked his politics or didn't that was a good thing for the president to come to that um, at least in theory we like to think that you know that's a great thing that the president would come in such a tragedy of public servants and in that he was, he was speaking well the firefighters and somewhere during his discourse he mentioned something about even the prophet Isaiah says here am I Lord send me that's the attitude these firefighters had when they went in to fight the fire mm-hmm. now who's going to challenge you know I mean, he, he's not necessarily trying to make a theological argument there but he's appealing to scripture in a way to try to make people feel good I guess I mean I know he had some sort of a Baptist or Southern Baptist or something upbringing but that verse that's not for use there mm-hmm. Okay, so again, it sounds nice and it sounds really cool, you know, but it doesn't belong there. It does not belong there. And, uh, and there are other places. There are, you know, President Obama did quote scripture probably more than I've ever heard any other president quote scripture. Um, so there's got to be a few out there if you come across them. Let me know in the meantime as we sort of continue through this. But, th- but they do that. And it's, and why do they do it? Why do they allude to Scripture? Because they know they have a lot of Christian understanding. Uh, you never hear him really... Uh, I don't think I've ever heard him, as much as he was accused of being a Muslim, quote the Quran um, or something like that. I mean, I know at one point he referred to the beautiful prayer music or something like that. But you never really hear him refer politicians refer to other religious texts. He was saying that uh, something about those that oppose Islam shall not inherit the future or something hmm. of that nature. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, but they use them. And, and the thing is, you know, they're, they're no better to do it than anybody else is. I mean, when they do it, it's wrong. And when anyone else does it, it's wrong. And it's just not helpful. 
And of course, we're, we're uh, yeah. Uh, in a in a uh, push for gun control, ah. Obama cites the verse, "Greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid out his life for his friends." Wow! <laughs> oh. Wow! Mm. Wow! A bunch of I mean, and that's true. That it is true. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. How does that fit into con- gun control? How did he co-opt that for a discussion on gun control? Again, except as an authority to say, I'm against gun control and so is God. I mean, I'm against... Yeah. Obama quotes non-existent Bible verse during speech about immigration in 2014. The good book... This is a quote. The good book says, don't throw stones in glass houses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so people do that as well, right? They take sort of a biblical idea and they just sort of turn it on its head. And we want to be careful not to do that either. So, you know, unless you've really studied, uh, and my understanding from people that, for example, have studied the Quran, is there are verses in there that call for the sort of regular. But I haven't studied the Quran, and I haven't studied people who have deeply studied the Quran. So I'm not going to quote a verse or two. I'm not going to look up a verse in the Quran, Google it online, and use that to assault somebody or to get in a discussion or an argument with a Muslim. I don't know anything about it. One theologian that's done a ton of work into looking into the Quran and studying it is James White. Yes, yes yeah, he has. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. a lot of work with that. Yep, and hopefully he'll come out. Does he, has he, does he have any writing on it? Has yeah, he got he a book on it? He's got a few books, yeah. I don't know if they're off the top of my That'd head. That'd be a good source, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, but he's, he's really good. So, uh, we, go, we go back to when did all of this misquoting God's Word begin? Who was the first dog to do that? That one was scripture written, right? So who was who? Somebody said. That. Yeah, yeah. What was going on with that, Maureen? Yeah. Did God really say? Yeah. Did God really say? You know, and and sort of uh, so set about to begin to twist things around in ways that they shouldn't be twisted around. Um, and we would say, you know, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Okay, so Eve sort of knew. She added. She, she, she did add to it afterwards. She said the whole less, you know. Um, no, God never told Adam, don't touch it. Right. No, no, that's right. She said, right, that's right, that's right. Yeah, that's so, kind of added it to her. <laughs> and and that, that makes a significant difference. The difference between, you know, touching and eating. Um... But you know, but but let's say, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And and I don't know. You know, it's interesting in a way. I wonder if He had in mind. Uh, you know, she might actually know how to respond to that, but in such a way just to get her off her heels anyway, to not go to set her back on her heels. Uh, but this is not new. You know, this has been going on for a very long time. Um, go all the way back to the beginning when people have been misusing scripture for their own ends and what we're doing is going over uh, a number of verses that the most misused Bible verses and how they affect the body and how they affect believers how they affect unbelievers <coughs> uh, another one you know even the, the, our Lord himself had to deal with this right he had to deal with an actual use of a Bible verse which was not wrong it was said the right way there wasn't a word missing there wasn't a word added but you recall when uh, in Luke 4, 9-11, the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So there's a verse that's accurate. Okay, uh, Satan accurately quoted Scripture there. But what's wrong with that? Okay. 
Well, let's 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 think of how Jesus right, how context of course. How did Jesus respond? Yeah, right, right. And uh, so, and what we have though in this psalm is just sort of as as the author says here, a general promise by God to care for His people. But the devil inappropriately applies it to a situation that seeks to test God's sovereignty. And we should never be that person. Okay, we should never be that person. We don't test God's sovereignty as if prove yourself, God. Prove it. Right? I mean, that was really Satan's consistent rejoinder to, to, to our Lord Jesus. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. Do it. I think it, Talk about being... I mean, isn't it fascinating, just as a sort of a side, that the devil took Jesus anywhere, but he took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. Yeah. It also has nothing to do with Satan having something that God required or wanted. And right. I think that's written there too, which that verse has no meaning at all in that. No, you're right. You're right. There is no sense at all of that. So... With that in mind, with this, you know, how you know the dangers of misusing scripture, how we incorporate scripture, and we may even have uh, things in scripture we've held on to. Maybe it'll show up in these verses, verses that have become, in some ways, for us life verses, which maybe we're using in the wrong way. Maybe we don't really have a right to use them that way, or forget we don't have a right to use them that way. The fact that we're using them a certain way, and again, building up in ourselves a certain expectation about God which never comes to fruition, or we don't incorporate it at all into our spiritual formation the way God intended because it's been misused. Okay? So here's, here's the first one, and this is one we're all very familiar with among believers and unbelievers, even within the body. Matthew 7 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Right? Isn't this one of the... This is probably the most well. This may be. This, I'm surprised they don't hold up Matthew seven one in sporting events instead of John three sixteen, because you know, this is just. Uh, I mean, everybody and his brother knows this, and everybody and his brother knows it wrongly, you know, for the most part, uh, and it's just been used so many times. Um, and, and what's the reason that people use this verse the way that they typically do? What do you think is really good? Why do people do this? Because. It's in a way, it begins as the judgment that's being made is compared to self instead of to God's requirement. And so it's really an attack on you're no better than that person. And a lot of people use it in that way. And so when they do use it, they're trying to use it in an appropriate way, saying you have no right to judge that person. But there's a portion left out saying because you're using it as compared <coughs> to what you believe or how you are or what you think. Which mm-hmm. The, the judgment that should be made should be against God's requirement. Yeah, Mike. Kind of elaborate on that too, uh, on that point. I mean, I, I think a lot of people say it because it it justifies this idea of relative truth. Mm-hmm. It allows people to just continue to feel like their opinions and, mm-hmm. and ideas are just as valid as, mm-hmm. as everyone else's and their, mm-hmm. their truth about things. Yeah. No one wants to be told they're wrong. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people use it, as, as the author says here, as, as a shield for sin. Right? It's a barrier to keep others at bay, allowing them to justify living as they please without any regard for moral boundaries or accountability. You know, it, it, it sounds like, well, aren't we all sinners? You know, what gives us sort of the right to make moral judgments? But that's not what it's about at all. All right? 
and more often than not, like you said, people won't be told they're wrong. Who are you to judge is usually a very... Uh, it isn't... Gee, that's a very interesting comment you make about us not living that way. What? How did you get there? What? Where does that come from? No. This idea... Do you really think it's right for us to judge other people in that way? It's not a sincere inquiry into the process of making moral judgment collectively and, or how we should understand morality or where it comes from. It's more get out of my face! Who are you to tell me what's right or wrong? Right? But it's, it's, it's dressed up very nice. It's dressed up very nice. <coughs> but if we take a look at the context, and again, context is everything. Right? That's why I know in the past I've shared with you, this is one of Greg Kokel, Christian apologist's line, never read a Bible verse. Right? He's got a whole article written on it. Never read a Bible verse. And, and of course, the emphasis is on A. Right? Never read a Bible verse. Know the context. Know the paragraph. Know everything. So, so it's, I like the way that he communicates those things. Um, so, Matthew 7, 1, and it, it's found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Right, the place in the Bible where Jesus teaches what it means to live faithfully as a committed follower of Jesus and of one who pursues holiness out of reverence for God. Um, so Jesus is proclaiming a high moral standard that's consistent with what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's this author notes, right? And that's what he's doing, right? Because Jesus takes... What are some of the things that Jesus takes from the Old Testament and just... Uh, Extrapolates, so adds in a sense to them. Someone give an example of one of murder, the ethical yeah. comments of Jesus: adultery murder and heart. hate. Yeah, committing adultery in your heart. Yeah, committing adultery in your heart's a big one, right? Yeah. So, you know, you have heard, and, and, and so the Mosaic Law didn't really address these kinds of things. The Mosaic, you could, in certain ways, follow the um, the written. You, you could literally not commit murder. You could never take a sword or a spear to a person and destroy them or, or anything, any number of ways to kill them. But when you've hated them, Jesus says, boy, you've, you've murdered them. You, it's the same condition of the heart and, and the same as lust. Okay, so you haven't really, you haven't gone, hopefully and thankfully, you haven't gone to the extent of you know, a man or a woman having sexual relations outside of marriage with another man or woman. But, there's a certain thing called lust. It's a condition of the heart, which looks at others in that way, thinks of others in that way. And Jesus says, what? So you could, under the Mosaic Code, you could be completely free of, of guilt as far as not actually committing it. And this is why the Mosaic Law was... The Mosaic Law could never really relieve the guilt in a person. Yes? Paul himself says in Philippians chapter 3, according to the law, he was blameless. Yeah, sure, yeah. I felt that way before I came to know the law. Yeah. A lot of things I didn't do. Yep. I didn't, you know, yep. Could look at my own life and say, oh, I, I, was, I was very good doing yep. it. And, and, and then you have that sort of one uh, commandment that really addresses the hard condition, right? Mm. It's coveting. Mm. Right? The scripture says not to covet. Yep. That's a real, that one really goes right to the mind. And to, I mean, so the scripture says, you know, honor your mother and father, right? Mm -hmm. And you could do that outwardly and inwardly despise them. That's right. Right, you can do all kinds of things in the scripture, you, but that covet way, and that's interesting that Paul chose that one. Says, "I would not have known coveting had I not read, you know, you're not to covet, because the law provokes sin in him." Yeah, Sproul said, in, the, in my opinion, he really tweaked my thinking. I think in a proper way on that text, <clears throat> he said that uh, Jesus wasn't making an ethical equivalent there, quote unquote. Right. 
the idea, though, is the judgment is the is the ethical response of God towards that. Yes. Sin. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, be, they they are equal in that in that sense. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 Judgment both deserve judgment. So yeah. it really fits the context. Judge yes, not, let she be judged. Because if you're judging and you're the one who is just saying raka or fool, mm-hmm. or the one who lusts at a woman. Yeah. Uh, and yet, um, your judgment will be the same, whether it's in the heart or mm. in the action. Mm. They are the same it's, in terms it's, of the judgment of God. It, it is the the heart is the problem. The central sort of understanding, the central, um, the whole thing. So, um, so interesting sort of thought on that, right? So, so you have to know the context of what's going on there. All right. So, so Jesus' real concern when he gets to this point is the hypocrite. Because okay? Jesus goes on, and, and, and again, the context of what he's doing. Uh, and let's face it, I mean, Jesus would be a hypocrite himself if you shall not judge was meant to never literally judge anyone. Because Jesus was constantly judging the Pharisees. Constantly coming to making moral judgments against the Pharisees. Calls them brood of vipers. Right? How about Herod? Jesus says, you go tell that fox. You go tell that fox. What? You go tell that sly, sneaky, nocturnal, sharp-toothed, scraggly, strawny-looking brunt of a beast that I do the Lord's work here and I do it... To, right? Jesus wasn't just being light and fluffy about that. You go tell that pretty little red four-legged creature. Jesus knew the fox was, right? Mm-hmm. So Jesus was constantly making... in a way that only Jesus could. Yeah. Right? Like the right to. Yeah, right. And nothing hypocritical about Jesus. But, uh, so, and, and Jesus goes on to talk about the whole wood and the plank, you know, the speck in the eye and the plank in the eye. And you, you can't possibly go help somebody else, you know. You, sh- you shouldn't even be mentioning it. And anyone's sort of sin to them like that when you're struggling with doing the same thing. Romans 3 is all about that, you know. You who teach others, you know. You who, you, you who condemn others and tell them not to rob. You rob temples. You know, Jesus, God makes, a, 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 Paul receives understanding from the Spirit that he shares with them. Um, and what Jesus is saying in this, he says, what, what this means is the greater judgment is reserved for the one who has purposefully overlooked his own mammoth sin while pointing out the smaller sins of others. Jesus emphatically says this must change, so he gives two commands. Stop judging others in a hypocritical fashion and get the sin out of your own life. That's the whole point of that. Okay? So, let me say this. If somebody is struggling with pornography and they're out there condemning homosexuality, you better shut your mouth and open your heart. Yeah. So the, the correct application then of, of this, mm. this verse is then we as Christians, mm. I mean, are, are, is it that we're allowed to, I don't want to say the word just judge, but to, to point out and call out others when they're not, uh, what's her, uh, I'm making this up as I go along. Um, when they're I, not, do that all, I do that all the time. <laughs> when they're not adhering to... It's called life. To scripture, so so it's yeah. the it's the idea of don't judge kind of based on your own set of standards, yeah. but because there are other verses that say you know mm-hmm. have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but yeah. rather expose. Well, yeah, we have to. So then we have yeah. to then have a personal response to that, or all the time, desire and all that. All stuff. the time, so we should is constantly. It, is it that? Is it more the the standard that we're judging against? Versus the actual judging itself. Am I don't I think it's that the right way. Not even, well, I don't know. If it's I never really thought about this. Until yeah, then, so. yeah. I think that. Um, well, I, 
what, what the Lord is showing us here is concern is the hypocritical, making hypocritical judgments. Because even later in the verse, Jesus goes on to say, when you judge, make a righteous judgment. <laughs> so, you know, so, but what he's really concerned about, and the whole, again, the whole speck and plank thing tells us really all we need to sort of understand about this. Jesus is very concerned. Um, it's, not, it's not that we have no right to make moral judgments at all. Right? He doesn't contemn like mutual accountability and moral responsibility. We know from Galatians, Paul says, you, you know, if you see someone overtaken in a sin, you who are spiritual go, watching out for yourself. Right? Is there something else going on in your life? So, so yeah, we're to make moral actions all the time. The church talks about church discipline. If a brother sins against you and repents, good to go. If he doesn't, go to him with two or three witnesses. We're going to talk about Matthew 6.18 and how much that's misunderstood at some point too. I mean, 18, Matthew 18, uh, some of the verses in there. Well, even, um, even further in Matthew 7, when he's talking about the trees, you know, you'll know a good tree with yep. fruit, you'll know a bad tree. Yeah, so we're constantly called to make judgments, <laughs> but we're certainly not called to... And, and when we do make judgments, it should obviously be in love. This is loveless judging, in a sense, that Jesus is talking about. We go around sort of pointing out other people's sins, ignoring our own. Right? And I think it's something we do a lot more than we see on the surface. And really, and I think any time, maybe any time that we want to pass a moral judgment, we should just stop and think. Even if we're just doing it in our heart to ourselves, thinking something about someone that just said something or did something. you know? Because let's face it, uh, as I often say, we carry on a conversation with ourselves all the time. We talk to ourselves more than anybody else. And uh, so there are things that we say to ourselves about situations and people all the time. And those things, they're not just they're not just passive. They're not just safe to say. They're not just okay. Because we're reaffirming and reinforcing in ourselves a lifestyle of, of lovelessness. And, and, and I think we need to be very careful and much more often adhere to the standard of Jesus in that. Yes? Two things. My, my thoughts are constantly thinking about how I can love my, life, my wife more. Yes. Okay? Yes. <laughs> but no, secondly, uh, survey says good answer. <laughs> did that sound good to the That did. It was intended to be. No, but um, Jesus says, "Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous." That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and we are quick to judge. A very good point. Yeah. Quick to make. So. And we judge by appearance so regularly. Yes. And yeah. the, boy, there needs to be a great big pause when we meet somebody, yes. or even say we know somebody. Mm-hmm. We don't know the context. We yep. don't know the motives. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an important thing. It is. So, so Jesus is specifically concerned with this. He's not saying we never make moral judgments. These same people that would say, uh, so it oftentimes, is, let's face it, oftentimes this makes its way into politics, right? The tentacles of politics and religion, it's, it's a root system that, <laughs> unfortunately, it all gets entangled underground, right? Um, so the intersection of those two things play out all the time, which makes sense, I mean, because we're talking about worldview, right? So, that's what, it usually comes up a lot in that you know who are you to say that that but you know you know what's interesting is uh, e- even when we're doing that right uh, well, let me just comment with this is, so therefore Jesus does not forbid all moral judgment or accountability rather he forbids harsh prideful hypocritical judgment that condemns others outright amen brother <laughs> without first evaluating one's own spiritual condition and commitment to forsake sin. We should never be calling out. If, if we don't have a real commitment in our life to follow Jesus, you know, and I'm not talking about the, the, the string and the, 
you know, the difficulties that we have. But if it's not a real concern for us that we want to live a holy lives in Christ Jesus, we want to be the church, we want to be everything God said, then we just we just got to shut up. You know, Paul at one point says, "Who am I to judge outsiders? I judge in the church." Mm. That's, so that's another place we have to be very careful while we're on the subject, right? Is we are going to be much more concerned with ethical behavior inside the body than outside the body. So in other words, you know, I, I'm not going to primarily be concerned with someone's sexual sin if they're outside of Christ. Well, so what if I am able to convince them to forsake sexual sin? What have I accomplished? Maybe I saved them a disease. Maybe an unplanned pregnancy is avoided. It might lead to even greater sin. You know I mean? But in the body, we need to be very concerned because there's love there. There's love enough to receive instruction and love enough to give instruction and training and all that stuff and correction. So, anyway, so uh, and certainly this sort of sheds light, as the author says, on a state of our culture—a culture that seeks to avoid accountability and responsibility, responsibility for personal actions. <clears throat> and I think that uh, um, you know one of the things that makes it difficult as I said even in the process of if, if, if somebody says to you who are you to judge others aren't they passing a judgment on you? I think the very process of, 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 of telling you not to judge others judging you they're telling you that what you're doing is wrong it's wrong for you to judge others so if someone says to you who are you to judge Ask them. Are you, so what, are you suggesting that it's wrong for me to say something that someone else is doing is wrong? Yes, I am. Well, then why are you judging me, right? So why are you telling me? So you don't really believe that. What you believe is that I shouldn't say anything about this particular behavior or, or, or whatever, and that's fine. Tell me why you think I shouldn't. What's what's your standard? You know, let's 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 sort of discuss it. So if you know if someone's and this is where you have to be wise too, if you're in a conversation and it's it's safe, or I should say, it's clear to you that the conversation allows some space for you to sort of bring out of the discussion something a little more depth, then proceed with caution. If people are just being, you know, who are you to judge? You know, if it's just a rabid fight, forget about it. But if there's an opportunity to say, you know, you, you clearly think that what I'm doing is wrong, and you think it's okay to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. But that is a form of judging, right? I mean, you when you tell me not to judge, you've already made a judgment that what I'm doing is wrong. So you're judging, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I disagree that you think that what I'm doing is wrong, but you know maybe that becomes an opportunity to have a discussion that can lead to where does morality come from, or you know, so many words. Good to go on that one. Anything further on on this? Has anyone ever had that that levied against them? Has anyone ever had that Bible rock dropped on their head? Yeah, yeah. Who are you to judge? Yeah. More years to go than now. Joyce, then you should stop doing that then. You know? <laughs> it's happening tons. <laughs> yeah, more more so in years past. Is yeah. that what you said? Yeah. Mm. There is a there is an awful lot of judging going on out there. Again, we see it in the political world all the time. We see it in see it all the time. No, because no one likes to be accountable for themselves, um, and they certainly don't want to be told what to do. And they don't want to be suggested they're less than. But you know, for the Christian, if we would stop and think that it took the crucifixion of Christ to atone for our sin, we shouldn't be ashamed to have anything exposed. It's already been exposed in the ultimate way. Nothing, there's nothing greater that could be said about my sin than the cross, right? Mm-hmm. What else? What, why? That's why you know I'm probably a little, maybe too free in some ways to share 
things in the past about myself because look at, look, at, look at what Jesus suffered. If I'm willing to tell someone Christ had to suffer and die for me, then what do I, what can I possibly have to hide? Jesus was exposed naked and everything else on the cross. Taking my place. So, Okay, here comes one. This one, I don't know, I don't know about this crowd. Maybe there's one or two in here. But here's a verse that's taken out of context all the time. And um, it's Jeremiah 29, 11-13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper and not harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. There are Christian people that pray this. I've heard this in prayers. People say, Lord, when something happens. And I actually heard it very recently, actually. Uh, it wasn't somebody in this body. But they literally played that. Lord, we know that uh, the plans you have are to prosper us and to not harm us. Okay? This isn't a prayer. We don't get to claim this text for that at all. We don't. It's not ours. You can't play with that. That's not in our... That's not in our... What the verse is communicating is there's certainly plenty here for us to understand. But... Yeah. Exactly. Just That's right. And but but this is not as as, as Maureen is saying. This exactly. This has nothing to do with. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because this author of this book had this as sort of his life verse. You know, as, from a very young age, this sort of became the verse that he he sort of made for 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 his own. Um, what he says, uh, it, it quickly and conveniently became not only my life verse but my subconscious expectation for how I thought God intended to bless my life right here and now, just as long as I did what He wanted and as long as I was committed, as I committed myself to seek after Him with my whole heart. Get that? Did you get that? It was not only His life verse, but it became His subconscious expectation for how He thought God intended to bless His life if He would do certain things. How many Christians live with, in, in, with a sense of, geez, God might bless me if I stop doing this particular thing. Or, if I do more of this, if I give more to the church, if I spend more time in Bible, if I do more and more, if I pray more often, God will then reward me, in a sense. This verse is devastating to our understanding of how our interaction with God is. Well, I think verses could have a meaning for the time and the people. Mm-hmm. But it also has a meaning that can apply to you. Mm-hmm. Maybe our expectations are wrong. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. Well, in a minute, we'll take a look at the context of this verse. And we'll see there are verses in Scripture that speak to us about um, our, you know, our, how, how well off we are, what we really are. Yes, Beth. You're adding work to the cross. Yeah, you are adding. Jesus said, take up your cross daily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's so not saying, I'm going to make you all prosperous and happy. Well, that's a fact, right? Yeah, we learned, we certainly saw that, didn't we? But notice what a danger again this this became his subconscious expectation. This is what this is what promise should be. Promises to us should build up that expectancy in us. A promise from God should build up expectancy. But what if the promise is wrong? What if you misunderstood the promise and that promise becomes part of the basis for your living? You know, talk about running into a dangerous encounter with reality, man. You're running smack dab into some big problems when things go. Hard. Which verse are you uh, quoting there? And I say uh, Jeremiah twenty nine. 
11 yeah, it's Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13. Oh, okay. I wasn't reading far enough down. Yeah. Um, so, again, but if we want to understand what's saying here, we got to take a closer vi- uh, look at the context of Jeremiah 29. This, is, this time in biblical history was a season of despair. All right? Life was anything but rosy for God's people, the Israelites. Their kings and spiritual leaders were filled with corruption. The people themselves had disobeyed God's commands and had intermarried with some of the surrounding pagan tribes who had led them astray to worship other gods. They had compromised everything that God had told them not to compromise. Okay, They had done everything that they weren't supposed to do. <laughs> right? There were so many things that had gone wrong. So, uh, so and the reality is, God's going to do now what He said He would do. He would have them taken away captive. Okay, this was this was Babylonian captivity. God's people were looking at seventy years of hard labor, a season of fatherly discipline that would last well beyond their lifetimes. So, if it was going to last well beyond their lifetimes, then how could they say how how could this properly be understood as God's plans to prosper me? Okay, because this went well beyond. God didn't prosper them. If, if, if what is meant by this verse is what some people say this verse means, there are a lot of people that were to Babylon that did not experience this. Uh, all the while being dominated and subjected to the humiliation of being Christian slaves to their enemies. It would be a hard life. However, Jeremiah does give the people some good news. And here is where this guy's sort of personal life verse shows up. He says, this is what the Lord says. This is Jeremiah 10, uh, 29, 10 through 14. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Because that's a promise God had made. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found with you, declares the Lord. And bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So if we're going to take this verse and use it, 11 through 13, as uh, putting it in our prayer, we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, well, what nation am I being brought back from? Right? Where have I been led off? You can't just spiritualize this. There's no spiritualizing this. You don't say, well, I'm kind of been captive in uh, in the land of lust, you know, and God's going to carry me back from there. You know, you can't spiritualize this text. It's not meant for that kind of a thing. Or, or like you, said, you can't like over-spiritualize it. You can't make it something that it's not. Okay? So God is speaking to the Israelite nation of Judah here specifically. And this is the plan for the nation. Not necessarily a personal promise. Alright? It, it's directed to any one person. It's a corporate promise to the nation Israel. Because again, a lot of these people are going to die in exile. And they're never going to see this prosperity and this blessing. Uh, so we have to be cautious about grabbing it out of its context and, and, and again, inappropriately applying it to individual believers in the 21st century. And again, second of all, it's a promise for God's people who will exist 70 years from the time the promise is given. And, and most of those people will be dead. They'll, they'll likely perish in exile. So it can't mean that. And so we can't take it and use the verse that way. All right. Um, yes. Well, you, in, in this, and in this reason why you got to be wise, of course, when you're teaching is why there's more responsibility on teachers, and you know, greater is the judgment for teachers who teach. Mm-hmm. Um, but Paul in First Corinthians ten does use the whole entire experience of mm-hmm. the Israelites in yep. the wilderness yep. as an application 
to their mm-hmm. own sanctification mm-hmm. and to beware of the yep. the uh, the complaining and the grumbling and everything else. Yep. Uh, in this, I, it, it would not. I would not have a problem as a person in a counseling situation that you know you felt far from the Lord and uh, your uh, your your sin has left you uh, all by yourself and mm-hmm. you're um, alienated from God because of mm-hmm. your sin. And, mm-hmm. and that's it. But recognize the fact that the Lord can bring you out of that despairing place and, mm-hmm. and bring you back into a place where mm-hmm. you're in communing with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's something like that in a very yeah. general sense. There are pr- certain principles that Christ fulfills even in that particular setting. Right. Um, and, and we know that we know that in Hebrews 11, as the author points, you can see that many of God's people in history had to live the same kind of future hope, right? Many of them suffered horribly in this life, yet they lived by faith in the hope of a sort of a fuller life uh, down the road. In one sense, we're all in captivity right now. Uh, you know what I mean? The, the world no. is a captivity mm-hmm. of sin that we still have to endure and bear. Uh, yeah, in a sense. I just don't think it compares to what we're seeing here as the nation of Israel in mm-hmm. uh, the way that the promise was made and the things that happened before. God had promised them. We don't have any sense that God's going to lead us away in exile somewhere, that God's going to, you know, uh, we, we know that we reap what we sow and that kind of thing, but the historical setting here is completely unique to Israel. Mm-hmm. And therefore the promise is completely unique to Israel. It doesn't mean there isn't the principle in there, as you were saying, that, that we don't understand in a fuller sense. I mean, look, we know this. Scripture says we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's nothing more to come but sort of the consummation of things. When there is no sin, there's no... But we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're already citizens of heaven, the Scripture says. Uh, so, if we're going to apply this at all, it has to be applied in sort of an appropriate way. Not just a sort of general, you know... Uh, if people are going through a great struggle or a great trial, you know, we don't... We don't come up with this sort of worldly promise. This is making a worldly promise. You'll say, to gee, Todd, I know... Geez, I'm sorry to hear your orchard burned down and, you know... Uh, you know, hasn't spoken in three months. And, and, you know, all this stuff is going wrong in your life. But you know what? The Lord, the Lord knows the plans He has for you to prosper you, to blah, 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 right? We have no right to hold God hostage to a promise that we have misunderstood. I love that. What a great line. We have no right to hold God hostage to a promise that we have misunderstood. Any more than our children, you know, could misunderstand a promise we've made or take some sort of a promise that we made and given them our word on a particular thing out of context. Okay? Um, okay. So, Jeremiah 29, 11 and 13 contains some great promises, but if I use it to demand from God the American dream... Then a props, but perhaps I should also be willing to literally endure 70 years of captivity <laughs> if that's what God should choose. Right? Not likely, though, right? <laughs> so, um, that's what did we cover? Two of them? And I think there's 15 or 16 in here. There, are other, there may be other ones that don't show up in here. We'll cover them as well. So, this, this may take a few weeks anyway, which is fine because it gives us what I'm hoping that we see in this is an ongoing exercise in understanding how to apply and understand scripture and the danger of misapplying it and the danger of, of, of misconceiving God's intention for it and so that our practice always when we're reading scripture if, if even if there's a line for us which is wonderful alright uh, that becomes a life verse for us that we can you know not misunderstand it I don't know if uh, I don't recall in this well, I have a couple of chapters left to read myself you know when Paul says people you know, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, 
you know, with prayer and supplication, let requests known be known to God. And so people use that uh, and just say, well, if, since that's the case, well, we should never be anxious. Scripture says, don't be anxious. Paul also says in that very same book, he had great anxiety about a number of things. And in other places, he said he had great anxiety about the church. So is Paul contradicting his own command? No. There's a sense of, don't be anxious. Don't just remain in an anxious, unsteady state. You've got the opportunity to do something about that. Pray. Do this. Do that. Don't just be anxious and leave yourself in that place of worry. Do something. That's this, that's a, if you're worried and you're anxious and all of us get that way, there's things you can do about that. Yes? That's right. Don't quote Jeremiah 29:11 to 13 to yourself when you're anxious. That's a great thought, though. It's a great point. I can't to hold that God hostage to a promise that I've misunderstood. I know. I know. I walk from life, but you know, Andy Stanley. Uh huh. I'm sure you've heard of. He was talking about unhinging the Old Testament from the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And I saw a debate on Facebook uh, a friend of ours. Somebody had commented on her quotation of, I don't think it was from my point on 11, but uh, some of the Old Testament promises sort of taken out of context. Mm-hmm. And how are we to understand these Old Testament passages and how do they apply to us today? Mm-hmm. Right. Christians right. Kind of yeah, the fact is, they might not apply in their setting at all, but there might be certain principles in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly. Uh, we know this that um, uh, God's plan for us that are His is that we will be with Him forever in glory. But it shouldn't be like, all right, well, life is miserable now, but it's going to be great. No, because we're going to see somewhere else. We can be content in all circumstances. That's another one of the verses that's misused. The way that that's misused. But our our we're. we're I mean, heaven is going to be, you know, the, the next, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be awesome. But it shouldn't come as a complete surprise to us. Mm. When we cross over from here to eternity, we wouldn't say, oh, wow, this is I, I wasn't expecting this at all. But really? You really missed a lot then while you were, you know, unless, you know, you, you, you died a couple of weeks before, you converted a week or two before death or whatever, right? But we're, we're in the process always of, I mean, we're, we're being immersed in sort of the... the well, you know, what, what can we have of God now, here and now? Quite a bit. But we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Joy and wonder. Why yes. That's right. Yes. My gosh. Well, and here's a verse I don't think is in this book, but again, there's a few left. That one would say, where, where the Scripture says in Corinthians, it says, eye has not seen or ear heard. And people use that like, yeah, heaven's going to be great. Why? Because eye has not seen or ear heard. Well, yeah, but it goes on to tell you, but these have been revealed to us by the Spirit. This isn't something future. This is now. Now, now, now. it's true that there are things. But again, when we arrive in the afterlife, whenever that happens to us today or 40 years from now, it shouldn't be a complete and utter surprise. Uh, we might be surprised at how much we missed or that we ignored, but we shouldn't be utterly surprised at, at sort of what we encounter, right? Although it's going to be so so magnified and so... And, and uh, it's not going to be discolored and tainted by a sort of sinful comprehension, an incomplete comprehension that, that you know, still has the sort of... So, uh, think about that. Maybe think about... But there are a lot of verses. Think about what some of them might be. And uh, But let's make sure that we use it as an opportunity to be able to minister to one another 
some people just use them in a well-intentioned way. They're not, you know, trying to begin some blasphemous movement. Um, so we can be, you know, mindful of that. Um, to just just keep in mind that not everybody understands everything, and we all have to grow. We all have to mature. Uh, and there, but it is interesting that some of the verses that are most misused are some of the most clear verses in Scripture as to what is being said. If you would just consider a little bit of context, you know. So, all right, good enough. Then, then let's have uh, uh, Randy. Would you pray for us? And here's another one. Women that keep silent in churches. If, if that's to be understood in a certain way, then we violated that a number of times already here this morning and we're doing it right now because there's women upstairs making noise. Right? So maybe that's the verse that even if it doesn't come up, we'll get. But I'm taking on that bigger. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a, a real study on the role of women in the church because I think it's very important. It goes along with all kinds of things I've mentioned I want to get to. I want to get to discussions and how do we understand how we minister in this world uh, with the, the whole transgender, trans everything discussion. How do we, how, how do we, how do we minister? How do we think about that? How do we love? You know, uh, how, no, how, how do we make sure we don't prevent ourselves from being loving? You know, what things prevent us from being loving with these things and all that? So, because we need God's word on everything, right? All right.